So here at Epidemiology Counts, we've talked about a number of health issues that the public cares deeply about. Nutrition, flu vaccines, exposure to plastics. In order for us to know about the risks and benefits to our health of these things, researchers need to study them. But who decides what we study and what we focus on? Well, that's complex and has to do with societal preferences, where funders and government agencies decide to put their money, advocacy, and preferences from individual researchers. But are we focusing on the right things? Do we get good value for the money we put into health research? How do we know what's really making us sick? And how do we make it better? Informing this debate is a bold idea, something called consequentialist epidemiology, which is a new or newish way of thinking about what we should prioritize when it comes to health research. It's a big picture way of thinking about what matters in determining the health of populations, and it's created a big debate among epidemiologists about what we should be focused on in order to improve public health. Should we focus on eating and drinking the right things to build a healthy society? And what if we step back and think about why we eat and drink the way we do? Consider that when looking across populations, the social and economic inequalities and in deaths across a wide variety of causes of death remain large, and should, this should give us pause in thinking through how to actually build a healthy society from birth to old age. I'm your host, Matt Fox, from the Boston University School of Public Health, and this is Epidemiology Counts from the Society for Epidemiologic Research, a podcast that gives you up-to-date information on the state of health research, research straight from researchers who are deeply involved in this work. Today, we're going to be talking about consequentialist epidemiology. To do so, I'm joined by Dr. Carrie Keyes from the Mailman School of Public Health at Columbia University. Welcome to Epidemiology Counts. Thank you for having me. And we also have a guest with us today who is an expert on this particular topic. Carrie, can you introduce our guest? Yes. Our, uh, the guest we have today is a close colleague of mine and the dean of the School of Public Health at Boston University, Dr. Sandro Galea. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me both. Great. Um, so, you know, as Matt introduced, I think our goal today is to uh, really dig down into what consequentialist epidemiology is, how it's similar or different than other kinds of epidemiology, what the priorities are of um, this, this way of thinking or this way of prioritizing our research questions. Um, so I'm really looking forward to having a conversation with you. Likewise. So, you know, just to kind of get us started, I wanted to talk about actually what are the major causes of death in the United States? Um, how do we, you know, in the news we might hear about particular causes of disease more than others, but if you actually look at the numbers, what's killing Americans? So that's a, that's a, that's a great question. In some respects, anybody listening will say, well, that's a simple question, right? There's a list of causes. But before I even answer that, and I'll get to the list in a second, l let me start with a story. Okay. So I'll, I'll start with the story of um, Blind Willie Johnson. Now anybody who knows the blues will know Blind Willie Johnson. He's remembered because we remember a few dozen of his songs. So Blind Willie was born in Texas at the turn of the 20th century. And he was born sighted, but the story is that when he was about seven, his mother threw lie in his face in a domestic violence incident, and he became blind. So he was poor, blind, black in Texas in the beginning of the 20th century. He learned how to play the guitar, and he made a living busking. Not a very good living, as you can imagine. And he got married, and uh, him and his wife, they lived in a small house, and the house burnt down, and they didn't have any money, so they eventually kept living in the burnt-out husk of the house. When he was in his early 40s, he developed malaria. Now, this is Texas in the 1940s. Malaria was quite common. And his wife took him to hospital, and he was turned away from hospital. And it's not clear if he was turned away because he was poor, because he was black, or because he was blind and then he died. 
Now, why am I telling the story? Because the question is, well, what killed Blind Willie Johnson? Now, what killed Blind Willie Johnson was malaria. Because malaria was the disease that killed him. Had he received treatment for his malaria, he would have lived. But the reason I tell that story is because when you hear that story, it's pretty clear that it wasn't just malaria that killed him. It was malaria, yes, but it was also poverty. It was also homelessness. It was domestic violence. It was racism. It was poor access to care. So w w I find that when I tell the story, most reasonable people get it. Most reasonable pe people get that all those forces killed by Willie Johnson. So now I come to your question, which is, so well what kills Americans, you asked? Well, if you go on the CDC website today, you'll find that the leading cause of death for Americans is heart disease, and after that followed by cancers. Those are the leading causes of death. But there are also other analyses that have been done by the CDC that takes a different perspective that says, let's not think about the pathology. Let's actually think about the behaviors that lead to those causes of death. And when you do it that way, the leading cause of death actually is smoking. The second leading cause of death is obesity. But there's another way of doing the analysis where you say, well, let's not take the behaviors. Let's take the world around us that shapes our behaviors. And when you do it that way, the leading cause of death probably is low education followed by racial segregation. So all of these are really causes of death. It is correct to say that most Americans die from heart disease. I think it's also correct to say that most Americans die because of cigarette smoking. And I think it's also correct to say that most Americans die from low education. And, and in part, the argument of consequentialist epidemiology is that we should be aware that there are different ways of looking at the world and we should be studying the factors that matter that ultimately shape health. And can I follow up on that a little bit? So it, would it be fair to say that if uh, there are these different ways of looking at things that you're proposing, that the reason why there are these different ways that we get to the same same result, essentially, which is the things that people are dying of, is because we could actually do something about these different factors. So say you were talking about uh, education being one of them. So if we improved education, we would never get to potentially some of the, the intermediate factors, the behaviors, and then we would never get to the, the causes of death that, that we typically think of as causes of death. Well, Is that the idea? How we look, at, how we look at, at, let's just stick with causes of death, and, mm -hmm. and we should also not talk only about death, but let's just talk about that for a second. How we consider the causes of death really matters for what we do with our science and what we do with our investments. Mm -hmm. So if we said the leading cause of death is heart disease, which is what we say a lot, well, what are we going to do about that? Well, what we're going to do is we're going to write a lot of papers about heart disease. We are going to invest billions of federal dollars in a national research institute of heart, lung, and blood disease. If we said, well, the leading cause of death is tobacco smoke, or even a bit more extreme, leading cause of death is low education, maybe we should have a federal research institute that is a national institute of research into low education and health. So all so, so we, there is a cascade of consequences to how one sees the causes of death. So I'm uh, delighted we started with the question is, what are the causes of death? Because ultimately, that shapes everything we do. And if just to finish, to going back to Blind Willie, if we said all that kills Blind Willie is malaria, if we said, really, it was malaria, ultimately it was just malaria, then we should invest all our money in malaria. And that's frankly what we end up doing a lot in, th in this country. We, in we invest all our money metaphorically in the malaria, ignoring everything else. So I guess my question would be, what's the argument against that? Like, what's the argument for mm. the malaria cause of death? There is no argument against it. This, this is not an or argument. It's an and argument. 
So the argument against, to use the term, which is perhaps more adversarial than I, than I would put it, but just, just to sort of a frame Just the it. devil's advocate. Yeah, no, no, I understand. It's um, this country today, and just talk about the U.S. focus, and we can talk globally in a second. We spend $3.3 trillion on health, and we have the worst health indicators of any high-income right. country. Now, why is that? The simple explanation for that is that we spend all our $3.3 trillion essentially, on malaria. And we're not spending any of that money on the homelessness, on the poverty, on the domestic violence, and on the racism. And, and, and when you understand it, when you understand that it's the full set of factors that cause health, and you can say, if we're going to spend $3.3 trillion, we need to spread it out in order to promote health. Y one challenge which, which I often put out there is, can you name one other industry where we as Americans spend more, by 40% more, than the next closest competitor, and we get less? And the truth is, we, we actually can't think of any other industry. Like if, if, if I told you, Carrie, Matt, your smartphone that you both have out in front of you is going to cost you 40% more than it does in the next closest country and is going to work worse than all other countries, you know, what would you do? You would figure out a way to go to this other country and buy your phone from there. But in health, we accept that. And it is in large part because we are not thinking about what matters. And what matters is not, or malaria obviously matters. At the end of the day, malaria is what's killing me and you. Malaria matters, but malaria is part of a larger spectrum of, of forces. And what, what I was trying to get at with epidemiology of consequence is to push us to ask the question, well, what matters? And at the end of the day, some of the work that you and I have done together is what matters most. Right. So what I'm, I'm curious about this idea, though, because it seems to me the, the response, and I assume you get this a lot, is, well, we know how to treat malaria, though. I mean, okay, there are hypothetical other malarias that we don't know how to treat, but we know how to attack problems like heart disease and things from a medical standpoint. We know how to try to make new drugs, and we know how to go through the processes of trying to, to potentially change people's behavior, but we don't know how to have big societal changes around education or poverty. No, 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 no. That's, that's, that's just not right. Uh, first of all, A, we know much more than that question uh, suggests, and B, we should give ourselves more credit. We, we, we can actually know things that we set our mind to. So, so let's let just scale that back for a second. So let's take, let's take something that is one of the leading causes of that, no matter how you look at it, which is obesity. So obesity has risen tremendously in the past 25 years. Roughly, we've had an increase of about 50% in the prevalence of obesity nationally. Now, in 25 years is a short period of time yeah. to change that much. Well, what has not changed? that drives obesity. Well, one thing that has not changed in the past 25 years is our genes. Our genetics haven't changed. But we have spent inordinate amount of money pursuing the genetics of obesity. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not actually saying we should not do that. I, this is an and argument, not an or argument. What we have spent much less money on is thinking about how do we restructure our environments so that you and I actually want to exercise, you and I want to walk rather than take our cars places. So. So we simply haven't made the effort yeah. to understand these forces, number one. And number two, we actually do know much more than we think we know. Let's, let's stick with exercise for a second. Mm -hmm. Fewer than 10% of trips in this country are taken by walking. In a place like Germany, you have, depending on the age group, more than 50, 60, or 70% of trips made by walking. Now, Germans and Americans, they're not constitutionally different. We're all people. But they have structured a world which encourages walking. So we know much more than we, we know much more than we give ourselves credit for knowing. And we also have an opportunity to study 
and look into what we can do as long as we have the right focus. Do we know how to do we know, so I, and I agree with everything you just said. Do we know how to change those things though? So we I agree with you that yeah. we know that that things are very different in Germany than in the US and those things have consequences for health. Do we know how to get people to change their behaviors or do we know how to change people's environments to make them more conducive right. to walking? So 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 that so that question embeds multitude. So let me just parse it. Let's let, let's parse it out for a second. So Let's start by how we change environments. So implicit in your question is that it's actually hard to change environments. It's, it, and, and, and I've come to feel the way we change environments fundamentally is by changing the way we talk about things, by changing the way we talk about health in this context. And my last book, is the title is What We Need to Talk About When We Talk About Health. And the point of that is really to say we should change our conversation because once, once our conversation changes, if we stop talking about malaria metaphorically, and we start talking about the other forces, mm -hmm. we will, in, in short order, change what we study and where we intervene. So that's part A, how we change our environments. And I do think that change in culture, and Kerry has done some very interesting work about this, about the notion of culture and norms. And ultimately, I think we, as scientists, need to be in part in the business of changing culture. So that's part A of your question. Now, the second part of your question is, how do we change behaviors? I, I think a mistake that we have made in in the population health sciences is thinking that we are any good at exhortative efforts to change behavior, at finger-wagging efforts that says, Matt, you should walk more, and Matt, don't eat those fries. Because the bulk of the evidence suggests that that just doesn't work, or right. if it does work, it works in the short term. So ultimately, it comes down to changing our environment. And changing our environment has to depend on us understanding what we want to change, and that has to depend on us understanding that these are factors that cause health. And, you know, I, I think, too, then the question becomes, what are the barriers to doing that, right? And I think some of those barriers have to do with when you shift the conversation away from explicit, you know, malaria is a cause of death to low education is a cause of death. One issue is that there's a diffuse number of outcomes that come from low education. So it's, it's taking us out of the particular health sphere mm -hmm. and forcing us to intersect with a lot of different other it factors. Does. It does. And right? it makes us uncomfortable. And the priorities are not all aligned <coughs> among those different actors um, necessarily. But they should be. Sure. And, and it's art. So, so here's a challenge to us. So you know, all three of us, we're, we're, we're all scientists within the academic public health establishment. And the challenge that I often pose to us in our school is if not our job, then whose job is it to convince the world of what it is that we should study? Mm -hmm. and, and, and I really feel like, uh, starting from the paper on epidemiology of consequence, which, which Matt, um, you prefaced, I, I've been on this journey in the past five years of trying to push us to think critically about what it is that matters. And Kerry, when you and I did the paper, which we called What Matters Most, I, I, I still think that's one of the most important papers that I've ever had the privilege of being a part of because it was really pushing people to say, yeah. it's, it's not just what matters, because a lot of things matter, right? In, in the malaria story, I want to be clear, malaria matters, and poverty matters, and racism matters, but what matters most to shifting the health of populations? Uh, let me tell another metaphor, if I may. So the, the, uh, this, this one is borrowed from David Foster Wallace. So y you have a goldfish in a bowl, right? And uh, you want your goldfish to be healthy, 
So you tell your goldfish to swim in its bowl 10 times clockwise, 10 times counterclockwise every day, so it gets exercise. And you tell your goldfish not to eat too much of little food you give it on top so it doesn't get fat. And when the goldfish is sick, you get it the best possible goldfish doctor. And then one day, your goldfish still dies. And you say, how could it be? It exercised, it ate well, it saw the best possible goldfish doctor. And then you realize, ah, it's because I forgot to change its water. Now, usually when I tell that, so people say, oh, it's a chuckle, and like say, okay, well, I get it. But that's exactly what we do, right? If we focus only on Matt, thou shalt exercise. Gary, thou shalt not eat too much. Sandra, when you're sick, we're gonna get you a good doctor. And then we forget that ultimately we are in water. We are missing an important part of the picture. Not to obviate the importance of the doctor when I'm sick. Mm. You know, when I'm sick, I want the best possible doctor. And you know, we all need to eat judiciously and we all need to exercise. But the water around us is equally, if not more important. I think the what matters most question is, well, what is most important? Right, and, and how you, un- and what methods we can use in epidemiology in order to make those decision points easier of like what what are the questions that I should focus on what is the next step in my research how do I how do I prioritize different ways of thinking or different research questions Um, because I think one one problem or not problem I guess or just one facet of this is that everyone thinks that their research question is the most important research question. Th- th- that is something that academics are very good at. Right. The, Kerry, uh, <laughs> um, uh, you introduced uh, an, an element which we haven't talked about so far, which is the methods, which I, I, I think yeah. is actually very appropriate because w- once, once you start thinking this way, once you start thinking that epidemiology should count what matters, once you start right. th- th- to use that language, that epidemiology of consequence should count what matters, then you realize that sometimes what matters is harder to measure than other times. And, uh, and look, epidemiologic methods are much easier if we're simply dealing with randomizing a drug than they are if we are trying to understand the role that spatial racial residential segregation plays. These are th- 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 they're a whole different set of methods. And there's reasons why they're easier and harder, in part because of where epidemiology comes from. Epidemiology as, as a set of tools emerged from medicine. It emerged from trying to help medicine understand the consequences of its approaches. So, so epidemiology emerged from a lens where it was already inclined to think narrowly and to think in a focused way about a particular set of easily measurable exposures. Mm-hmm. And, and, and there are th- we have a hundred years of history of that's where we come from. So for us today in 2019 to say, well, you know what? Racial residential segregation also matters and perhaps it might matter more than whether you take the green pill or the purple pill all of a sudden it forces us to think quite differently and it forces us to upend not only assumptions and norms but how many of us in epidemiology have been trained and how our teachers were trained right so do you uh, that's interesting to me because that's not a, a way that i've really thought about this before and i'm I, it makes me wonder are you are you saying that the reason that we are studying the things that we're studying is because we can only study the things that we have methods and tools to be able to study and yes. So that's where we are. This is is classic lamppost bias. So lamppost bias, right? It's, uh, you know, the the, the guys on on the street looking looking at the the ground and somebody else comes around and says, what are you doing? I'm looking for my keys. Oh, let me help you. They they both bend down. They're both looking for the keys. And after a while, the second guy says, we don't see your keys. Did you lose them over here? He said, no, no, I didn't lose them over here. I lost them over there. The second guy said, well, well then why are you looking here? First guy said, well, it's because there's a lamppost here. I can see here, right? And so, so we often apply 
the methods that we know how to use. So this goes back to where yeah. we started this conversation, which is that uh, everything flows from what we fundamentally think it's important. So that's why the blind willy story, I think, matters so much, as, as a metaphor, obviously, because if we think only malaria is important, we're going to have methods to help us study malaria, and then we're going to study malaria-like things. And, and, and the shift that we need to make collectively, those of us who are epidemiologists and those of us who are quantitative scientists of population health, is to recognize that that's just not good enough. And there's abundant evidence that it's not good enough. I, I made a reference earlier to the fact that our health indicators as a country are just worse than all other high-income countries, and that should be that should be unacceptable to us. I agree. I mean, uh, so another thing that I'm kind of thinking about is your response to, um, you know, do you think in this way of thinking, there, there's been this debate in epidemiology for a long time, kind of a tired debate about, you know, should the goal of epidemiology be the eradication of poverty? You know, I guess my question is, do you think that social inequalities are inevitable? Or do you think that they are fundamentally resolvable if we had the right methods, if we had the right data, if we had the right measures, and we had the right interventions, you know, w how far could we take that? I think some degree of heterogeneity in health indicators is always going to be with us. And I'm using my words carefully because the word inequality em embeds a certain set of assumptions. Okay. Uh, so let me start there. I think some, some, some degree of heterogeneity is always going to be with us. But now, let's go to, so to your question, which says, well, can we address that effectively with the right methods and with the right lens? And I think the answer is absolutely, particularly if we think that that's what matters. Now, of course, as some of our writing together, Kerry has pointed out, that's actually even harder than we often give it credit for, because the task of improving overall population health is not infrequently at odds with the task of narrowing health inequalities. And that, right. which is which you and I have called equity efficiency trade-offs, is something which I think epidemiology has not grappled with. And, and, and it's something that we have to grapple with if we're going to say that health inequalities matter. Well Wait, well, sorry, can you just explain that in more detail? Because I'm, I'm not sure I follow exactly why those two would be at odds. Yeah, so, so, so uh, perhaps the easiest way to explain is through just through a simple, simple, simple anecdote. So, Suppose, Matt, that you are um, you are a health commissioner and you're responsible for um, a town of 100 people. And uh, somebody says to you, the mayor, the mayor comes and says to you, I, I want you to increase the colonoscopy screening rate because colonoscopy saves lives, right? And you have, a, you have a screening rate right now of 40% and I want you to take it up to 60%. That's what the mayor says. And you have a year to do it. So you scratch your head and you say, well, my job depends on this. So how am I going to get a colonoscopy up from 40% to 60%? I know what to do. I'm going to take the money I have and I'm going to invest it in a educational program and I'm really going to target doctor's offices to make sure that all patients hear about this and they all get colonoscopy. And you do that and over the course of a year, your colonoscopy rate goes up from 40% to 60%. But then you look carefully at the numbers. Well, who is it that got your educational messaging? Well, the people who got your educational messaging are people who are well-informed, who are well-read, and who go to doctors to begin with. And when you look carefully at the data, you realize that what you did, you started with 40% overall, remember. That 40% represented, let's say, a 30-50 gap. 30% among the poor, 50% among the rich. Well, to get to 60%, you're now, you've, you've left the 30 where it is, and you've raised everybody else to a 90. So you have achieved efficiency, which means you've improved overall health, but you've widened, mm -hmm. you've widened the gap. Now, the question is, is that acceptable to you? Are you okay with 
taking overall from 40 to 60 and widening the gap from 20 to 40. I may be getting the math wrong here. I'm thinking of my feet, but you get the Sound idea. Sound about right. Yeah. <laughs> um, are you okay with that? Or are you going to say, you know what? No, that's not acceptable. And, and, and what Carrie and I have written about this is whether you're okay with it or not actually is a matter of values. It's mm -hmm. a matter of, of is our value improving overall efficiency or is our ma value narrowing inequality? I've actually had a lot of fun with this question, uh, posing it to my teenage children. So I've actually posed this question to my teenage children and they disagree vehemently about this. <laughs> because uh, you know, just, just sort of as, as people just, like just think this through and one of them says, well, at the end of the day, I've increased overall and that's, that's important. The other one says, no, 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 you, you can't widen inequality. And I think that's an important discussion and we should have the discussion. But to have the discussion, we need to understand it. And we need to be upfront about what our value system is. Absolutely. We, and, we, we, and, and, and recognizing that value systems change. I mean, value systems right. change and evolve, but it needs to be part of our conversation. And I think the bigger conversation that relates to that question about interventions in general is the extent to which it's acceptable to, um, at, for public health to shift population curves versus focus on a particular set of people that we might be able to intervene on more effectively because they're high risk. And that is also something that you and I have written a lot about. Yeah, and we've written about that from the, from the perspective of that epidemiology ultimately should be the quantitative heart of population health science. And when you say that, it's one of those phrases that I feel like I say, and most of the time when epidemiologists aren't paying attention, they say, okay, sure. I get that, <laughs> sure. But that actually has real implications because once you accept that what we are doing is about the health of populations, it has implications for how you prioritize and to go back to where we started to what matters most and then it says well then what really should matter should be the overall health of population not just one particular group right then you say okay well then what does matter to health of population let's go back let's go back to blind willie johnson you know blind willie got malaria well it's only a small subset of people who get malaria well maybe what matters most wasn't really malaria but it was the poverty that he was brought up in or the racism that he was brought up in that was endemic right? these poverty and racism are are small effect ubiquitous forces that have enormous profound implications for the health of populations that to use Kerry's term that shift the curves and I, I find it frustrating when you know within epidemiology and sometimes within science and, and, it, and in talking to other people too they say well but you you know but how are you going to change poverty you know we, we can we can develop a drug for malaria but like pff, changing residential racial segregation you know that takes a lot more effort, but we've done it many times in American history. We, well, we've changed lots of things. So, so give us some examples. We've changed wage structures for Americans, for example. We, 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 we've changed policies around redlining about who is eligible, right. who is eligible for loans for mm -hmm. housing. The, the um, we've created social safety nets. We've taken away social safety nets, and yep. they have had huge implications for the the livelihood of americans and to think that that didn't have an implication on their health would be um our, our, our would be a big jump we make decisions that generate our health collectively mm -hmm. and in america just to focus on american health uh, so we should be clear on this that american health 35 years ago i guess almost 40 years ago now around 1980 american health was in the top half of health in high-income countries. Today, we're at the very bottom. We have lost about five years of life expectancy compared to peer high-income countries. And in the past three years, 
we've had a year-on-year -year downturn in life expectancy, and that was, was the first time we've had that since the 1918 flu pandemic. Now, what does that tell us? Well, that tells us that we are making decisions that are changing our health. I go back to what I said earlier. It's not like our genetics are changing. It is we are collectively making decisions that are affecting our health. And it is our job in population health and our job as epidemiologists who are the, the, at the heart of population health to count and document and to bear witness in a way that says, this is what we're doing to ourselves. Do we find this acceptable? So if you were the head of NIH, mm. for example, or you know, a major funding body that decides who gets funded to do what research, and you started from complete scratch, would you make an institute of education and an institute of, um, you if, know, if we racism elimination? I mean, how would you... If we're starting from scratch? You're starting from scratch. You have complete, you, you have unlimited resources... Yes. And you get to make those decisions. I would... Uh, what are the institutes that you would pick? It's great. Nobody's given me that kind of power before. So I like this. I'm enjoying <laughs> this. I'm enjoying this. Um, um, this is not I, real, I but this is a I hypothetical. Think, <laughs> I know. You got afraid as soon as I said that. Um, uh, I think I would do a, um, an exposure outcome matrix set okay. of institutes. So I think I would create institutes of health research. They're all about health, right? That are well. Would that you though? That well, no, no, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Okay. So do it's about health, which are some of which would be cancer, some of which would be heart disease, some of which would be neurological disorders, and some of which would be education and housing and segregation and social isolation and social support. So, because I do think that that it benefits us to have focused expertise that is focused on ultimately what is the the pathophysiology that becomes disease in us as well as having expertise and focus on the processes that ultimately that, that lead to that pathophysiology. So I, I do think you need both. And what would you take away? Because uh, I, thought I, had, I thought you had unlimited resources. Yes, exactly. You're changing the rules of the game. <laughs> <now>. rules, <laughs> rules have changed. Um, uh, I think that um, we spend an inordinate amount of money on this. We, it, it, and the numbers bear us out. L let me just remind us. We don't spend a little tiny bit more than the next closest country. We spend 40% right. more than the next closest country. So, so th 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 there is abundant money sloshing in the system that if it were to be rearranged, I mean, I, I think we could, I mean, if you, if you want us to have absolute power and reimagine things, we take our healthcare system, convert it to the only stable, rational system that we need to get to eventually, which is a system that's predicated on primary care as its foundation, yeah. and instantly, we're going to save 40% of money and we can put all that in these other new institutes. How's that? Problem <laughs> solved. Well done. I mean, there are some institutes that I, I, I think part of the problem, I think, is uh, the interest groups that influence the funding decisions that are made both in the healthcare yes. system, you know, kind of for when your healthcare system is for profit, it influences not only the decisions that are made in the doctor's office, but also decisions about funding. Um, and how those dollars are distributed. So I think, again, now the next step would be, so now if you're dismantling the healthcare system, you're dismantling NIH and rebuilding it, I think you also, you know, is there an argument to be made for dismantling the capitalism of health itself? Ooh, the, the word, uh, the, the, yeah, the word dismantling is such a strong word. Uh. <laughs> I, I, um, I, I've got to think that it's less about interest groups. That's sort of that, that conveys a bit of a more of an organized resistance than I think there is. 
as much about as it is about inertia. Is that is yeah. that is that when systems are the way they are, it doesn't matter what the system is. It could be any system. People adjust and figure out ways in which to make the system work for them, work right. to their advantage, or just work for them. And as a result, change is very hard. Change is hard in all systems, and because people of good conscience. So they don't want to be bothered. Like, uh, yeah, no, you know, yeah, I get the fact that this is not a great system, but you know what? I figured out a way to work in it, and and I figured out a way to make a living, and this is what I do. So, so I I do think that the uh, the intellectual exercise of saying if we're to start over from scratch, what would we do, is useful. Mm-hmm. But I think it's equally useful to have the the wisdom to say how this do we go from such vision to executing change in 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 a way that gets us to our desired outcome. Well, and part of the reason I asked the question is because I think one important concept that we haven't talked about in this in in the domain of consequential epidemiology and and in the questions that we're asking is the idea of fundamental causes. And to kind of summarize that idea from Bruce Link and Joe Phelan and others is that um, you know, when you were saying, well, some heterogeneity in health outcomes is and is is probably, you know, always yeah. going to be there. Um, and what that theory has posited is that the way that heterogeneity is going to occur is because people will always, there will always be people who use power, prestige, um, and, and other yes. resources yes. Yes. in order yes. to create yes. those differentials. Like yes. that differential has to occur. That's correct. And, and in order for some people to have more things, other people have to have less. That's so correct. again, it goes back to the value system of how much of that you're going to allow. But even if you remade the world where you know we have a primary healthcare system, we have NIH institutes for these important social causes, I, I think you're exactly right that there are still going to be people that figure out how to use that system to their advantage. And that advantage has to be to the detriment of other people. I, I, I think that's right, and I think, Carrie, uh, in, in your last s- set of statements, you kept coming to w- to the word values, and, yeah. and and I have increasingly come to feel that, and and, and I've written um, uh, a, a few pieces on this, that uh, ultimately, what we do lies at the intersection of our values and our knowledge. So knowing is not good enough. We must also care about. Let's just use concrete examples. We know, we know that having safe injection facilities will reduce the social, economic, and health consequences of injection drug use. Yes. The, the, the data on that, to my mind, are incontrovertible and clear. But we have, we do not have safe injection facilities in this country yet, although they're coming very soon, I think, in some key cities. That's not an issue of knowledge. It's an issue of values, right? So our values have not aligned with what we know. So to, to, to my mind, those of us who are in the business of science who say, we are going to restrict ourselves strictly to generating data that generate knowledge. We are, we are being disingenuous if we also say, well, our role as a science is to generate knowledge that can create a better world. Because, this, because the, the knowledge by itself is not going to get us there. Right. We need the knowledge intersecting with value. So I do think that we as scientists need to somehow engage in the mucky business of values of the values conversation that helps us that helps us get somewhere where we can make a difference. Yeah, I I agree and and I also to me where my mind goes is back to the statement that you made that for the last 3 years our our life expectancy mm-hmm. in the US has been decreasing. And so why is that? You know, what what are what are the drivers of that? And in my mind, um and there have been analyses to demonstrate this, that it is it, the, the reason that life expectancy is declining is causes of death among young people. Mm-hmm. 
And the causes of death among young people are primarily, especially in the last few years, overdose and suicide. And so part of that value system and part of the question of what matters most is are we placing enough emphasis on understanding those particular causes of death that are that are well let's let, let, let's let, let's know. let's take suicide let's take suicide as 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 one of those causes and of course as uh, as you know about two thirds of those suicides are from guns yes so from guns so guns are have been for a long time the third rail of American politics largely because of the influence of power and money and I mean guns are a consumer product they're a consumer product just the same way as your toaster is a consumer product y if your toaster malfunctions you can sue the toaster manufacturer. If your gun malfunctions, you cannot do that. Now, why is that? Well, that's, that is a societal decision that we have made to put guns that are, again, a consumer product that generate revenue for a particular industry in a special status. And yet guns serve only one purpose, one purpose alone, which is to hurt other people, right? And we, and or to hurt ourselves. So or to hurt other things. Well, other things, fair. So, so, so why is that acceptable? Well, it is because our values have allowed it to happen. Now, I, sometimes I hear from people say, well, it's not me, it's, uh, it's forces larger than me, but, but it is all us, and it is ultimately all us. It is what we allow to happen. There have been some interesting analyses recently that have looked at what percent of people do you need to feel strongly about something in a society for a change to happen? And the answer is actually shockingly low. It's about 3.5% of people. It's not that many people that you need to Is it just the right the kind of people? Well, it's 3.5% of people. It's not that many, but it's actually enough. And, and it really is a reminder of the fact that actually most of the time, very few people care enough about anything to demand change in anything. Because this goes back to the, the question you asked me earlier, Kerry, that most of the time people are sort of, even if things are imperfect, they'd rather have them the way they are. Change is really inimical in some respects to the human condition. And I would put also in, in that equation, power is what keeps the status quo you know so so if if the if the structure as it is is working for a lot of people and so you kind of have some inertia of like yeah i get it you know this system isn't great but you know it's yeah. I'm, I'm living my life there are people who don't feel that way right and and part of the power structure is to disenfranchise them from having a voice let that let is strong let, let, let's take the the data point that we have had three years of year-on-year -year decrease in life expectancy for the first time since the 1918 flu pandemic. Now, we're all nodding here. Can, can we agree that that's important? Sure. So I agree. Okay, uh -huh. we agree, I we mean, agree. Yep. So, so I have presented the data point, that single data point to audiences all over the country in the past year. And every single time I say that, I say, now I wanna show of hands honestly, how many of you knew that? It is consistently five to 10% of people at most who know that, right? I, in some respects, it's absurd mm -hmm. that that is not widely known. And, 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 and that betrays our values and what our health conversation is about. There was a recent analysis w which was uh, uh, put out by Our World in Data, which is a, a public access data source, which is very good. And um, they, asked, they, they asked a simple question. Uh, what does The Guardian and The New York Times, two leading newspapers, what do they report about? And how does that compare to what really causes death? So focusing on the pathological causes of death, it's heart disease and cancer, as we discussed. And what do New York Times and The Guardian report about? Well, it's about terrorism and homicide. Now, terrorism and homicide, terrorism in particular, in, in the American context, it is a, it is a negligible, negligible killer. cause of death, right. killer, as is homicide, actually, in the in In, in the, the grand scheme, right. mm -hmm. um, uh, What was interesting is they also showed what people do Google, what people go uh, do Google searches on. And actually, people are, people are closer in Google searches than are 
uh, the major newspapers in terms of their people are closer to what really affects our health. They're Googling so heart disease. Yes, and they are. They are to, to a much larger extent right. than are the um, um, uh, newspapers. So I think that reflects, uh, I don't mean this is, well, maybe I do mean it's a critique of uh, major newspapers. That's okay. Um, but I think newspapers ultimately reflect the national conversation. And the national conversation is simply wrong about what causes health. And when I started writing about consequential epidemiology, it was out of a desire to push epidemiologists, which is my disciplinary home, it's a group of scientists that I care very much about because I do think we have a really important role to play in generating health of populations. I really wanted to nudge us to have these kind of conversations so that a next generation thinks differently than the way our generation, those of us in this room, were raised and taught. So how, how much of that, what you just described about the differences in information and the, the differences between what is actually causing in uh, poor health and and mortality and compared to what people are actually caring about you know it, it's it seems to me as similar to the 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 idea that people are much more afraid of of dying from uh flying in a plane than they are from driving in a car it isn't that flying in a plane is in any way nearly as dangerous as driving in a car but it seems scarier and so we're much more scared of particular things we focus on those things and at the same time, it also seems to me it's very similar to the idea of um, uh, self-driving cars. That that you know, self-driving cars sound great, but if uh, if I was and and if we were to all have self-driving cars, the the number of accidents would probably go way down. The number of mortality from uh, automobile accidents would probably go way down. But that one death that was caused by a machine that it wasn't a human makes everybody crazy. It just seems to me there are these 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 differences in information that cause people to focus on things that might not be necessarily the, the things that are going to get us the, 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 the most benefit in terms of our health. Yeah, this is, um, I think this is on us. This is on us and we, and by us I mean scientists and population health, to help educate people. And, mm. and this is why, for example, just to, to go on a little bit of a tangent, but something which I've written about um, in the past few years, which actually stems from this consequentialist thinking is the, the unfortunate distraction of an overwhelming emphasis on precision medicine approaches. So mm. just to be clear, I, I've always tried to be clear about this in, in what I've written and what I've said, I'm not against precision medicine approaches. I think there is, there is tremendous potential for discovery science through more precise targeting of genetic molecular factors. So just to get that out there. But we have had such a bandwagon effect behind the precision medicine approaches, and what that has resulted in is a lot of misconceptions. For example, the misconception that if you and I know our genotype, we are going to change our behaviors. I mean, how many times have you heard that? In fact, when you look at meta-analyses, that's sort of not true. Mm -hmm. Actually, once you know your genotype, you keep doing what you were doing before. So the, the problem with the bandwagon effect on precision medicine is that it, it, it runs counter to educating us about focusing on what matters most, and it mm -hmm. rests on false assumptions about human behavior. And in, in, in all of this, in all of this, all I'm saying is, and, and Kerry, you and I have said this in, in our writing together, we as epidemiologists are the scientists of population health. We should care about the health of populations and we should hold ourselves accountable to saying, is our science doing that? Is our science pushing us to care about the health of populations? And epidemiology should hold itself accountable. Are we doing epidemiology that's consequential for the health of populations? I have a question. 
Please go ahead. You're a physician, correct? I am. So kind of along these lines, like in, in terms of zeitgeist and paradigms, um, and in terms of the, the strength of the evidence that's available, if you had a patient sitting in your office, do you think, I guess this is a, oh, I'll just ask the question and then you can tell me that the question should be asked differently. But do you think that you would learn more about the health of, of your patient if you asked her to scan her genotype with your, let's say we have, let's, oh, we're in the future now, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. You have on your iPhone, you can go to your patient, you can click yes. a button and you're going to scan her whole yeah. genotype. That's the iPhone that costs 40% more than does <laughs> right, right. Denmark, but works 40% <laughs> worse. Yes. That's right. Okay. So part of what you get in that 40% yes. is yeah. a genotype scanner. Yes. So you can scan her genotype or you can say, how's your relationship with your husband right now? No, th- 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 that question is too easy. You should ask something harder. I mean, th- 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 the answer to that is abundantly obvious. Uh, the scanning, the scanning her genotype is going to tell you and there are good papers on this. It tells you very little more right. than, than actually you get out of how's your relationship with your husband or tell me what uh, diseases your parents had. Right. So, so having a patient in your office and you ask her, what were your mom and dad sick from? And she tells you that. And you know what? It's much cheaper than your iPhone with the new genotype scanner. But yet I think the public is, in, is a, and science, I mean, I think yes. we're all enamored with the idea we are. That, that we're going to create troves of data that have high velocity and high volume and yes, that it sounds you know, great it, it sounds great that that you know there was a paper recently in the new england journal kind of describing a world where you take a picture of a of a mole right and you can upload it to a system where uh you know a, a artificial intelligence machine learn system will not only tell you the probability that that mole is irregular but it'll make an appointment for you with a specialist that will be Im- immediately cleared through your insurance because all these systems are talking together and it coordinates with your google calendar and says you know you have now have an appointment with dr so-and-so next wednesday you know that world sounds exciting it does it's i want to live in that uh, world. Uh, so do i right so do i you know you know here's another world i want to live in Okay. I want to live in a world. Is ice cream free in this world? <laughs> <laughs> well, not just the ice cream. It's, 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 it's non-fattening ice cream. That's free. Oh, even <laughs> better. Uh, I want no, this. Here's the world I also want to live in. I want to live in a world where I don't have to worry about my kids ever having to worry about bombs raining down on them in this country because we have a network of laser beams that zaps any foreign object that's coming from the sky that could threaten the health the, the, the Americans and yeah. uh, as a result keeps us all safe. I want to live in that world too. And you know what that world is called? That's the world of Star Wars, which was Ronald Reagan's great effort. And uh, the reason I'm using the Star Wars example is because I can think of many worlds in which I would like to live in. And just like Star Wars, many of them are infeasible and unrealistic. Now, I think there's nothing wrong with vision. There's nothing wrong with right. aspirational vision, nothing wrong with moonshots. So I, 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 I do not want to be sort of painted in the corner of the Luddite says, well, he doesn't want to dream. No, I think it's, it's great. These things are great. These things are aspirational. But we should not be sacrificing, we should not be sacrificing generations and lives needlessly yeah. for the sake of, n- of things that we're ultimately not going to achieve in our lifetime or our subsequent lifetimes. Today, we, we, we are here at an uh, epidemiology meeting, and just, at one, just one of many presentations that shows that if we raise the... Um, the gun law? The gun I was law, just going to bring that we up. We raise the gun law. Is it when I mind melt? <sighs> the kids would say go ahead, I missed this one. Yeah, so, so it was you, you, you shocking. Go you, you go ahead. Well, you, uh, at one of our presentations today, one of, one of the talks was about um, how many firearm suicides among adolescents we could prevent by raising the age at which you can purchase a gun from 18 to 21. And just looking at a couple different states and you know using available data, 
uh, we can save hundreds. We, we can save hundreds. We can save hundreds of, of, sui of, of, of teenage kids. suicides just by raising to the me, minimum that wage was, from 18 to 21. That was an so, indictment so, so, of so, us so as Americans. This, this, is, this is exactly what epidemiology of consequence is. So do I, wanna, do I think it's kind of cool to think of a world where we can scan ourselves and all sorts of like lights go off in, in, in pretty colors? Sure. That's I cool. like the coordination with the calendar. But yes, that's yes, the yes, most important, right? That coordination with the calendar, yeah. But meanwhile, I would actually like us to raise our minimum gun owning age from 18 to 21 so we can save hundreds of teenagers. That's I what I would like agree. us to do. So I guess one thing that's always been confusing, confusing to me, though, about the idea of epidemiology of consequence is I think that someone could make an equally good argument that both of those lines of research are consequential, right? The consequential is in the high eye of the beholder, just as we've been talking in this whole conversation about values, right? Like, what is consequential for health? Yes, yes, but this is, is why. But this is why epidemiology of consequence. Like, carry, what's consequential for you is 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 social causes. No, what's consequential for me? No, what's consequential for me is what improves the health of populations. The, the, at the end of the day, I feel like you have to start with your goal. Your goal is improving the health of populations. So I'm actually agnostic. As to as to what we focus on, as long as it improves the health of populations. If you can show me that the super duper scanner with the amber light is going to improve the health of populations, I'm going to say you're on board. I'm, I'm with it. Let's do a study about it. But 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 that is not the state of the science today, and it's not the state of science in any foreseeable future. What do you say to people who study very rare outcomes? I think somebody should study very rare outcomes. I think it's important, and I applaud them. And and uh, and, and I think we should do that. It's 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 all it's all in context. For example. One of the outcomes that we understudy and underfund, we know, is all injury-related outcomes. Yes. That's, that's, that's a mistake. We should invest more money in injury because more people die of injury. So, yes. I thought you were going to ask me a different question. So, let me ask the question I thought you were going <laughs> to ask me, um, um, which, which I get frequently when I speak to medical audiences. So, I speak to medical audiences, and, and they get it. And the, the doctor, inevitably, doctor, typically young doctors, they come up to me and say, okay, I get it. I get what you're saying. What would you like me to do? I'm a doctor. And my answer to the doctor is, I want you to be the best possible doctor you can be because when I'm sick, I want you to be a good doctor and to look after me. So the, the argument is not against doctors, not against medicine. Right. Like I want a great doctor to look after me when I'm sick because that's an important part right. of generating health. But I want us to also focus on all the other things. So it's a, a metaphor I use about that, if I may, contemporary right now because with the World Cup's going on, is the soccer team metaphor. So you have a soccer team, right? The doctor is like the goalie in the soccer team. You want a good doctor. You want a good doctor because every once in a while a ball's going to come to the net and you want somebody to be able to save it. But to keep people healthy, to win the soccer game, you need the 10 other players. And those 10 other players are the forces of gender equity and transportation and a healthy economy and stable housing and reducing violence and parks and places to work. Those are the other 10 players. So an epidemiology of consequence deals with all of those factors. To go back to Blind Willie, which is the story we started from, the, 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 the goalie, the doctor, deals with Blind Willie's malaria but we need to focus on everything else. And at the end of the day, what we focus on should be what improves the health of populations. Place where we should leave things. So I want to thank Dean Galea for joining us on this episode and Dr. Keyes for leading this conversation. And we also want to thank Sue Bevan for producing the show. Before we go, if you are an epidemiologist, I would strongly recommend that you think about becoming a member of the Society for Epidemiologic Research. Membership gets you a discounted fee for the annual meeting, which this year will be in Boston. And it also gets you access to the SER library, which you can find some great learning materials, seminars, and activities. You can find out more at epiresearch.org. We appreciate you listening, and we will be back with another episode soon.